0: 7. Acting affection. All prove his perfectly proportioned manliness. But Whitman differed from the disciple of Lombroso in two notable particulars, he had no quarrel with the world, and he did not wax rich. One thing thou lackest, O Walt Whitman, we might have said to the poet, you are not a financier. He died poor, but this is no proof of degeneracy, save on change. When the children of Count Tolstoy endeavored to have him adjudged insane. The court denied the application and voiced the wisest decision that ever came out of Russia, a man who gives away his money is not necessarily more foolish than he who saves it. And with L. trouble I assert that Whitman was the sanest man I ever saw. Some men make themselves homes, and others there be who rent rooms. Walt Whitman was essentially a citizen of the world, the world was his home and mankind were his friends. There was a quality in the man peculiarly universal, a strong, Viral poise that asked for nothing, but took what it needed. He loved men as brothers. Yet his brothers, after the flesh, understood him not. He loved children, they turned to him instinctively, but he had no children of his own. He loved women. And yet, this strongly sexed and manly man never loved a woman. And I might here say, as Philip Gilbert Hamerton said of Turner, he was lamentably unfortunate in this. Throughout his whole life, he never came under the ennobling and refining influence of a good woman. It requires you t- to make a home. The first home was made when a woman, cradling in her loving arms a baby, crooned a lullaby. All the tender sentimentality we throw around a place is the result of the sacred thought that we live there with someone else. It is our home. The home is a tryst, the place where we retire and shut the world out. Lovers make a home, just as birds make a nest. And unless a man knows the spell of the divine passion I hardly see how he can have a home at all he only rents a room. Camden is separated from the city of Philadelphia by the Delaware River. Camden lies low and flat A great, sandy, monotonous waste of straggling buildings. Here and there are straight rows of cheap houses, evidently erected by staid, broad-brimmed speculators from across the river, with eyes on the main chance. But they reckoned ill, for the town did not boom. Some of these houses have marble steps and white, barn like shutters, that might withstand a siege. When a funeral takes place in one of these houses, the shutters are tied with strips of mournful, black alpaca for a year and a day. Engineers, dockmen, express drivers and mechanics largely make up the citizens of Camden. Of course, Camden has its smug corner where prosperous merchants most do congregate, where they play croquet in the front yards, and have window boxes, and a piano and veranda chairs and terracotta statuary, but for the most part the houses of Camden are rented. And rented cheap. Many of the domiciles are frame and have the happy tumble down look of the back streets in Charleston or Richmond, those streets where the white trash merges off into prosperous colored aristocracy. Old hats do duty in keeping out the fresh air where Providence has interfered and broken out a pane, blinds hang by a single hinge, bricks on the chimney tops threaten the passers by, stringers and posts mark the place where proud picket fences once stood, the pickets having gone for kindling long ago. In the warm, Summer evenings, men in short sleeves sit on the front steps and stolidly smoke, while children pile up sand in the streets and play in the guppers. Parallel with Middle Street, a block away, are railway tracks. They're noisy switch engines that never keep Sabbath, puff back and forth, day and night, sending showers of soot and smoke when the wind is right and it usually is straight over number 328. Where, according to John Addington Simons and William Michael Rossetti, Live the mightiest seer of the century—the man whom they rank with Socrates, Epictetus, St. Paul, Michelangelo and Dandy. It was in August of 1883 that I first walked up that little street A hot, sultry summer evening. There had been a shower that turned the dust of the unpaved roadway to mud. The air was close and muddy. The houses, built right up to the sidewalks, over which, in little gutters, the steaming sewage ran. Seemed to have discharged their occupants into the street to enjoy the cool of the day, barefooted children by the score paddled in the mud, all the steps were filled with loungers, some of the men had discarded not only coats but shirts as well, and now sat in flaming red underwear, holding babies, they say that, woman's work is never done, but to the women of middle street this does not apply but stay, perhaps their work is never done, anyway. I remember that women sat on the curbs in calico dresses or leaned out of the windows, and all seemed supremely free from care. Can you tell me where Mr. Whitman lives? I asked a portly dame who was resting her elbows on a windowsill. Who? Mr. Whitman. You mean Walt Whitman? Yes. Show the gentleman. Molly, he'll give you a nickel. I'm sure. I had not seen Molly. She stood behind me. But as her mother spoke she seized tight hold of one of my fingers claiming me as her lawful prey. And all the other children looked on with envious eyes as little Molly threw at them glances of scorn and marched me off. Molly was five, going on six, she told me. She had bright red hair, a grimy face and little chapped feet that made not a sound as we walked. She got her nickel and carried it in her mouth. And this made conversation difficult. After going one block she suddenly stopped, squared me around and pointing said, Them is he and disappeared, in a wheeled rattan chair, in the hallway, a little back from the door of a plain, weather-beaten house, sat the coatless philosopher, his face and head wreathed in a tumult of snow-white hair, I had a little speech, all prepared weeks before and committed to memory, that I intended to repeat, telling him how I had read his poems and admired them and further I had stored away in my mind a few blades from leaves of grass that I purposed to bring out at the right time as a sort of certificate of character. But when that little girl jerked me right about face and heartlessly deserted me, I stared dumbly at the man whom I had come a hundred miles to see. I began angling for my little speech, but could not fetch it. Hello. Called the philosopher. Out of the white oriole. Hello. Come here. boy." He held out his hand and as I took it there was a grasp with meaning in it. Don't go yet, Joe, he said to a man seated on the step smoking a cob pipe. The old woman's calling me, said the swarthy Joe. Joe evidently held truth lightly. So long, Walt. Goodbye, Joe. Sit down, lad, sit down. I sat in the doorway at his feet. Now isn't it queer that fellow is a regular philosopher and works out some great problems? but he's ashamed to express him. He could no more give you his best than he could fly. Ashamed, I suppose. Ashamed of the best that is in him. We are all a little that way all but me I try to write my best. Regardless of whether anything sounds ridiculous or not regardless of what others think or say or have said. Ashamed of our holiest, truest and best. Is it not too bad? You are 25 now? Well, boys. You may grow until you are thirty and then you will be as wise as you ever will be. Haven't you noticed that men of sixty have no clearer vision than men of forty? One reason is that we have been taught that we know all about life and death and the mysteries of the grave. But the main reason is that we are ashamed to shove out and be ourselves. Jesus expressed his own individuality perhaps more than any other man we know of. And so he wields a wider influence than any other. And this though we only have a record of just twenty-seven days of his life. Now that fellow that just left is an engineer, and he dreams some beautiful dreams, but he never expresses them to anyone only hints them to me, and this only at twilight, he is like a weasel or a mink or a whipper will he comes out only at night, if the weather was like this all the time, people would never learn to read and write, said Joel to me just as you arrived, and isn't that so, here we can count a hundred people up and down this street, and not one is reading not one but that is just lulling about, except the children and they are happy only when playing in the dirt, why, if this tropical weather should continue we would all slip back into South Sea Icelanders, you can raise good men only in a little strip around the north temperate zone when you get out of the track of a glacier, a tender hearted, sympathetic man of brains is an accident, then the old man suddenly ceased and I imagine that he was following the thought out in his own mind, we sat silent for a space, The twilight fell, and a lamplighter lit the street lamp on the corner. He stopped an instant to salute the poet cheerily as he passed. The man sitting on the doorstep, across the street, smoking, knocked the ashes out of his pipe on his boot heel and went indoors. Women called their children, who did not respond, but still played on. Then the creepers were carried in to be fed their bread and milk and put to bed, and, shortly, shrill feminine voices ordered the other children indoors, and some obeyed. The night crept slowly on. I heard old Walt Chuckle behind me, talking incoherently to himself. And then he said, You are wondering why I live in such a place as this? Yes, that is exactly what I was thinking of. You think I belong in the country, in some quiet, shady place. But all I have to do is to shut my eyes and go there. No man loves the woods more than I. I was born within sound of the sea down on Long Island, and I know all the songs that the seashell sings but this babble and babel of voices pleases me better, especially since my legs went on a strike, for although I can't walk, you see I can still mix with the throng, so I suffer no loss, in the woods, a man must be all hands and feet, I like the folks, the plain, ignorant, and pretentious folks, and the youngsters that come and slide on my cellar door do not disturb me a bit, I'm different from Carlisle you know he had a noise proof room where he locked himself in. Now. When a huckster goes by, crying his wares, I open the blinds, and often wrangle with the fellow over the price of things, but the rugs have got into a way lately of leaving truck for me and refusing pay. Today an Irishman passed in three quarts of berries and walked off pretending to be mad because I offered to pay. When he was gone, I beckoned to the babies over the way they came over and we had a feast. Yes, I like the folks around here, I like the women, and I like the men. And I like the babies. And I like the youngsters that play in the alley and make mud pies on my steps. I expect to stay here until I die. You speak of death as a matter of course you are not afraid to die. Oh. Mumber my boy, death is as natural as life. And a deal kinder. But it is all good I accept it all and give thanks you have not forgotten my chant to death. Not I. I repeated a few lines from drum taps. He followed me. Rapping gently with his cane on the floor. And with little interjectory remarks of that's so very true, good, good, and when I faltered and lost the lines, he picked them up where the voice of my spirit tellied the song of the bird, in a strong, clear voice, but a voice full of sublime feeling, he repeated those immortal lines, beginning, come, lovely and soothing death, come, lovely and soothing death, undulate round the world, serenely arriving, arriving, in the day, in the night. To all, to each, sooner or later, delicate death, praised be the fathomless universe for life and joy, and for objects and knowledge curious, and for love, sweet love but praise, praise, praise for the sure and winding arms of cool, enfolding death, dark mother, always gliding near with soft feet, have none chanted for thee a chant of fullest welcome, then I chant for thee, I glorify thee above all, I bring thee a song that when thou must indeed come come and falteringly, approach, strong deliverance, when it is so, when thou hast taken them I joyously sing the death, lost in the loving, floating ocean of thee, waved in the flood of thy bliss, O death, from me to thee glad serenades, dances for thee I propose, saluting thee, adornments and feastings for thee, and the sights of the open landscape and the high spread sky are fitting, and life and the fields, and the huge and thoughtful night, the night in silence under many a star, the ocean shore and the husky whispering wave whose voice I know, and the soul turning to thee, O oh vast and well-veiled death, and the body gratefully nestling close to thee, over the treetops I float the Assam, over the rising and sinking waves, over the myriad fields and the prairies wide, over the dense packed cities all, and the teeming wharves, and waves, I float this carol with joy, with joy to thee, O oh death, the last playing youngster had silently disappeared from the streets, the doorsteps were deserted save where across the way a young man and maiden sat in the gloaming, conversing in low monotone, the clouds had drifted away, a great, yellow star shone out above the chimney tops in the east, I arose to go, I wish you'd come often or I see you so seldom, lad, said the old man, half plaintively. I did not explain that we had never met before that I had come from New York purposely to see him, he thought he knew me, and so he did as much as I could impart, the rest was irrelevant, as to my occupation or name, what booted it, he had no curiosity concerning me, I grasped his outstretched hand in both of my own, he said not a word, neither did I I turned and made my way to the ferry past the whispering lovers on the doorsteps, and over the railway tracks where the noisy engines puffed, as I walked on board the boat, the wine blew up cool and fresh from the west, the star in the east grew brighter, and other stars came out, reflecting themselves like gems in the dark blue of the Delaware, there was a soft sublimity in the sound of the bells that came echoing over the waters, my heart was very full, for I had felt the thrill of being in the presence of a great and loving soul, it was the first time and the last that I ever saw Walt Whitman, a good many writers bear no message, they carry no torch, sometimes they excite wonder, or they amuse and divert-divert us from our work, to be diverted to a certain degree may be well, but there is a point where her ends and cloud land begins, and even great poets occasionally befog the things they would reveal, Homer was seemingly blind to much simple truth, Virgil carries you away from earth, Horace was undone without his Macenus, Dandy makes you an exile. Shakespeare was singularly silent concerning the doubts, difficulties and common lives of common people, Byron's corsair life does not help you in your toil, and in his fight with English bards and Scotch reviewers we crave neutrality, to be caught in the meshes of Pope's dunciad is not pleasant, and Lowell's fable for critics is only another dunciad, but above all other poets who have ever lived, the author of Leaves of Grass was the poet of humanity, Milton knew all about heaven. And Dandy conducts us through hell, but it was left for Whitman to show us earth. His voice never goes so high that it breaks into an infant falsetto. Neither does it growl and snarl at things it does not understand, and not understanding does not like. He was so great that he had no envy, and his insight was so sure that he had no prejudice. He never boasted that he was higher, nor claimed to be less than any of the other sons of men. He met all on terms of absolute equality, mixing with the poor the lowly, the fallen, the oppressed, the cultured, the rich simply as brother with brother, and when he said to an outcast, not till the sun excludes you will I exclude you, he voiced a sentiment worthy of a god, he was brother to the elements, the mountains, the seas, the clouds, the sky, he loved them all and partook of them all in his large, free, and selfish, and trammelled nature, his heart knew no limits, and feeling his feet mortised in granite and his footsteps tenant in infinity he knew the amplitude of time, only the great are generous, only the strong are forgiving, like Lot's wife, most poets look back over their shoulders, and those who are not looking backward insist that we shall look into the future, and the vast majority of the whole scribbling rabble accept the precept, man never island but all was to be blessed, we grieve for childhood's happy days, and long for sweet rest in heaven and sigh for mansions in the skies, and the people about us seem so indifferent, and our friends so lukewarm, and really no one understands us, and our environment queers our budding spirituality, and the frost of jealousy nips our aspirations, O Paradise! O Paradise! The world is growing old, who would not be at rest and free where love is never cold, so sing the fearsome dyspeptics of the stylus, O Anemic Thee, you bloodless she nipping at crackers, sipping at tea. Why not consider that? Although evolutionists tell us where we came from, and theologians inform us where we are going to, yet the only thing we are really sure of is that we are here. The present is the perpetually moving spot where history ends and prophecy begins. It is our only possession, the past we reach through lapsing memory, halting recollection, hearsay and belief, we pierce the future by wistful faith or anxious hope, but the present is beneath our feet. Whitman sings the beauty and the glory of the present. He rebukes our groans and sighs bids us look about on every side at the wonders of creation, and at the miracles within our grasp. He lifts us up, restores us to our own, introduces us to man and to nature, and thus infuses into us courage, manly pride, self-reliance, and the strong faith that comes when we feel our kinship with God. He was so mixed with the universe that his voice took on this way of elemental integrity and candor. Absolutely honest. This man was unafraid an and unashamed, an for nature has neither apprehension, shame nor vainglory. In Leaves of Grass, Whitman speaks as all men have ever spoken who believe in God and in themselves oracular, without apology or abasement fearlessly. He tells of the powers and mysteries that pervade and guide all life, all death, all purpose. His work is masculine as the sun is masculine, for the prophetic voice is as surely masculine as the lullaby and lyric cry are feminine. Whitman brings the warmth of the sun to the buds of the heart, so that they open and bring forth form, color, perfume. He becomes for them element and dew, so these buds become blossoms, fruits, tall branches and stately trees that cast refreshing shadows. There are men who are to other men as the shadow of a mighty rock in a weary land such as Walt Whitman, Victor Hugo man is neither master of his life nor of his fate. He can but offer to his fellow men his efforts to diminish human suffering. He can but offer to God his indomitable faith in the growth of liberty. Victor Hugo the father of Victor Hugo was a general in the army of Napoleon. His mother a woman of rare grace and brave good sense. Victor was the third of three sons. Six weeks before the birth of her youngest boy. The mother wrote to a very dear friend of her husband. This letter, to General Victor Lajorje. Citizen General, soon to become the mother of a third child. It would be very agreeable to me if you would act as its godfather. Its name shall be yours one which you have not belied and one which you have so well honored, Victor or Victorine. Your consent will be a testimonial of your friendship for us. Please accept. Citizen General. The assurance of our sincere attachment. From Hugo. Victorine was expected. Victor came. General Ahoye acted as sponsor for the infant, a soldier's family lives here or there, everywhere or anywhere. In 1808, General Hugo was with Joseph Bonaparte in Spain. Victor was then six years old. His mother had taken as a residence a quaint house in the impasse of the few landings, Paris. It was one of those peculiar old places occasionally seen in France. The environs of London have a few, America none of which I know. This house, Rumi. Comfortable and antiquated, was surrounded with trees and a tangle of shrubbery, vines and flowers, above it all was a high stone wall, and in front a picket iron gate, it was a mosaic a sample of the sixteenth century and laid in this, solitary as the woods, quiet as a convent, sacred as a forest, a place for dreams, and reverie, and rest, at the back of the house was a dilapidated little chapel, here an aged priest counted his beads, said daily mass and endeavored to keep moth, rust and ruin from the house of prayer, this priest was a scholar, a man of learning, he taught the children of Madame Hugo, another man lived in this chapel, he never went outside the gate and used to take exercise at night, he had a cop bed in the shelter of the altar, beneath his pillow were a pair of pistols and a copy of Tacitus, this man lived there summer and winter, although there was no warmth save the scanty sunshine that stole in through the shattered windows. 2. Taught the children and gave them little lectures on history. He loved the youngest boy and would carry him on his shoulder and tell him stories of deeds of valor. One day a file of soldiers came. They took this man and manacled him. The mother sought to keep her children inside the house so that they should not witness the scene. But she did not succeed. The boys fought their mother and the servants in a mad frenzy trying to rescue the old man. The soldiers formed in columns of four and marched their prisoner away. Not long after, Madame Hugo was passing the Church of St. Jack's to Opa, her youngest boy's hand was in hers, she saw a large placard posted in front of the church, she paused and pointing to it said, Victor, read that, the boy read, it was a notice that General LeHoyer had been shot that day on the plains of Grenville by order of a court-martial, General LeHoyer was a gentleman of Brittany, he was a Republican, and five years before had grievously offended the Emperor a charge of conspiracy being proved against him, a price was placed upon his head, and he found a temporary refuge with the mother of his godson, that tragic incident of the arrest, and the placard announcing General Lehoyer's death, burned deep into the soul of the manling, and who shall say to what extent it colored his future life, when Napoleon met his downfall, it was also a waterloo for General Hugo, his property was confiscated, and penury took the place of plenty, When Victor was 19, his mother having died, the family life was broken up. In, When Miserables, the early struggles of Marius are described, and this, the author has told us, may be considered autobiography. He has related how the young man lived in a garret, how he would sweep this barren room, how he would buy a penny worth of cheese, waiting until dusk to get a loaf of bread, and slink home as furtively as if he had stolen it. How carrying his book under his arm he would enter the butcher's shop, and after being elbowed by jeering servants till he felt the cold sweat standing out on his forehead, he would take off his hat to the astonished butcher and ask for a single mutton chop. This he would carry to his garret, and cooking it himself it would be made to last for three days. In this way he managed to live on less than two hundred dollars a year, derived from the proceeds of poems, pamphlets and essays. At this time he was already an academy laureate, having received honorable mention for a poem submitted in a competition. In his twentieth year, fortune came to him in triple form, he brought out a book of poems that netted him 700 francs, soon after the publication of this book. Louis XVIII, who knew the value of having friends who were already writers, bestowed on him a pension of 1000 francs a year, then these two pieces of good fortune made possible a third his marriage. Early marriages are like late ones, they may be wise and they may not. Victor Hugo's marriage with Adèle Falker was a most happy event. A man with a mind as independent as Victor Hugo's is sure to make enemies. The classics were positive that he was defiling the well of classic French. And they sought to write him down. But by writing a man up you cannot write him down, the only thing that can smother a literary aspirant is silence. Victor Hugo coined the word when he could not find it. Transposed phrases, inverted sentences, and never called a spade an agricultural implement. Not content with this, he put the spade on exhibition and this often at unnecessary times, and occasionally prefaced the word with an adjective. Had he been let alone, he would not have done this. The censors told him he must not use the name of deity, nor should he refer so often to kings. At once, he doubled his topsies and put on his stage three uncle Toms when one might have answered, like Shakespeare. He used idioms and slang with profusion anything to express the idea. Will this convey the thought? If so, it was written down, and, once written, Beelzebub and all his hosts could not make him change it. But in the interest of truth let me note one exception, I do not like that word, said Mademoiselle Mars to Victor Hugo at a rehearsal of, Héron. I can I not change it? I wrote it so and it must stand, was the answer. Mademoiselle Mars used another expression instead of the author's, and he promptly asked her to resign her part. She wept, and upon agreeing to adhere to the text was reinstated in favor. Rehearsal after rehearsal occurred, and the words were repeated as written. The night of the performance came. Superb was the stage setting. Splendid the audience. The play went forward amid loud applause. The scene was reached where came the objectionable word. Did Mademoiselle Mars use it? Of course not, she used the word she chose she was a woman, fifty-three times she played the part, and not once did she use the author's pet phrase, and he was wise enough not to note the fact. The moral of this is that not even a strong man can cope with a small woman who wakes at the right time. The censorship forbade the placing of Marion Delorme on the stage until a certain historical episode in it had been changed, would the author be so kind as to change it, not the then it shall not be played said M.D. Martignac. The author hastened to interview the minister in person. He got a North Pole reception. In fact, M.D. Martignac said that it was his busy day, and that playwriting was foolish business anyway, but if a man were bound to write, he should write to amuse, not to instruct. And young Hugo was bowed out. When he found himself well outside the door he was furious. He would see the king himself. And he did see the king. His Majesty was gracious and very patient. He listened to the young author's plea, talked book lore, recited poetry, showed that he knew Hugo's verses, asked after the author's wife, then the baby, and said that the play could not go on. Hugo turned to go. Charles X called him back, and said that he was glad the author had called in fact. He was about to send for him. His pension thereafter should be 6,000 francs a year. Victor Hugo declined to receive it. Of course, the papers were full of the subject. All Dom took sides, Paris had a topic for gesticulation, and Paris improved the opportunity. Conservatism having stopped this play, there was only one thing to do, write another, for a play of Victor Hugo's must be put upon the stage. All his friends said so, his honor was at stake. In three weeks another play was ready. The censors read it and gave their report. They said that, Hernani, was whimsical in conception. Defective in execution, a tissue of extravagances, generally trivial and often coarse, but they advised that it be put upon the stage, just to show the public to what extent a folly an author could go. In order to preserve the dignity of their office, they drew up a list of six places where the text should be changed. Both sides were afraid, so each was willing to give in a point, the text was changed, and the important day for the presentation was drawing nigh, the romanticists were of course, anxious that the play should be a great success, the classics were quite willing that it should be otherwise, in fact, they had bought up the clack and were making arrangements to hiss it down, but the author's friends were numerous, they were young and lusty, they held meetings behind locked doors, and swore terrible oaths that the play should go, on the day of the initial performance, five hours before the curtain rose, they were on hand, having taken the best seats in the house, They also took the worst. Wherever a hisser might hide, these advocates of liberal art wore coats of green or red or blue. Costumes like bullfighters, trousers and hats to match or not to match anything to defy tradition. All during the performance there was an uproar. Theophile Gautier has described the event in most entertaining style. And in Historie de Romanticisme, the record of it is found in detail. Several American writers have touched upon this particular theme and all who have seen fit to write of it seem to have stood under umbrellas when God reigned humor. One writer calls it, the outburst of a tremendous revolution in literature. He speaks of, smoldering flames, the hordes that furiously fought entrenched behind prestige, age, caste, wealth and tradition, suppression and extermination of heresy, those who sought to stop the onward march of civilization, etc. Let us be sensible. A, Kane Rush, is not a revolution. And, bloody Monday, at Harvard is not, a decisive battle in the onward and upward march. If, hair had been hissed down, Victor Hugo would have lived just as long and might have written better. Civilization is not held in place by noisy youths in flaming waistcoats, and even if every cabbage had hit its mark, and every egg dispattered its target, the morning stars would still sing together. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, was next turned out written in five months and was a great success. Publishers besieged the author for another story, but he preferred poetry. It was thirty years before his next novel, La Miserables, appeared, but all the time he